Last week we did Revelation 4, so tonight we're on 5. So Revelation 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated at the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Okay, so the first thing we need to do is go through scrolls and seals. Um, the only place in Scripture where there's anything like this is in Jeremiah. Uh, you could argue that it's also in, in uh, Genesis where Abraham buys the cave at Machpelah to bury um, Sarah, but the details are not quite the same. So the, the place that I, w- I go is to Jeremiah 32. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah, the king of Judah, which was on the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. At that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem, and Jeremiah, the prophet, was shut up in the court of the guard that was in the palace of the king of Judah. For Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned him, saying, Why do you prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am giving the city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. Zedekiah, king of Judah, shall not escape out of the hand of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and shall speak with him face to face and see him eye to eye. And he shall take Zedekiah to Babylon, and there he shall remain until I visit him, declared the Lord. Though you fight against the Chaldeans, you shall not succeed. One of the things about Israel is prophecy was sort of a freelance business. There were lots of them. And so you could sort of shop around to get a prophecy that you liked. And if a prophet would give you a prophecy that you didn't like, especially if you were the king, uh, typically they would slap him around a little bit, try and uh, come up with something better. You remember that in the case of Elijah, where he gave a prophecy that there wouldn't be any rain for three and a half years. And the king then proceeded to try and kill him because he didn't like the prophecy. So there relationship with prophets and and the prophets' relation to God was a little bit different than uh, what we would think of today. So anyway, Zedekiah doesn't like what uh, Jeremiah is saying, so he throws him in jail and looks for prophets that will give him a better prophecy, uh, hence false prophets. So verse 6, Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord came to me, behold, Hanamiel, the son of Shalom, your uncle will come to you and say, Buy my field that is in Anathoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Then Hanamiel, my cousin, came to me in the court of the guard in accordance with the word of the Lord and said to me, Buy my field that is in Anathoth, the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. Okay, so Jerusalem is besieged by the Chaldeans, Nebuchadnezzar preparatory to being sanded off flat. Benjamin, where this field is, is basically hip deep in Chaldeans right now. So the price of real estate in Benjamin is not very high. So when uh, Hanamiel comes and says to Jeremiah, 
you have the right of redemption, and that, of course, goes back to the uh, Jubilee, where land is never permanently sold. So Jeremiah, being the next of kin, has got the right to redeem, and this guy, Hanamiel, shows up and says, you know, buy the land. Now, a sharp real estate guy would say, uh, not likely. <laughs> Why should I give you money for land that's knee-deep in Chaldeans right now? And, oh, by the way, I've had prophecies that say they're going to take everybody to Babylon. So I'm never going to get to enjoy this land. So Jeremiah says at the end of verse 8, I knew that this was the word of the Lord. Verse 9, And I bought the field at Anathoth from Hanamiel, my cousin, and weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. And, I, and again, I sort of think that <laughs> the price is fairly low. Um, 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, and weighed the money on scales, then I took the sealed deed of purchase containing the terms and conditions and the open copy, and I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, the son of Masiah, in the presence of Hanamiel, my cousin, in the presence of the witness who signed the deed of purchase, and in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting on the court of the garden. And I charged Baruch in their presence, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take these deeds, both the sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware vessel that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. So what God is showing Jeremiah by this action is, yeah, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, are going to take you all into captivity and is going to sand the place out flat. But don't worry, I haven't forgotten my covenant with you. And at some point in the future, Israel will come back, and that land will then go back to its proper owner, which is you or your descendants. Okay? But the, the thing I want to emphasize here is there's two copies of the deed. There's a sealed copy, and there's an open copy. Okay? And the way I would describe that in today's way of doing business in real estate is, you, you know, this is in the days before Xerox machines. So when they sold a piece of land, they wrote two copies of the deed. One gets rolled up and stamped with seals, and that gets basically put in the county courthouse. So that's the record copy, if you will. That's the official copy. If, if, if all else fails and you can't agree with your neighbor and you want to know who owns this tree or who owns that stream or what the water rights are, the two of you can go together to the county courthouse, open up the deal for a magistrate, and have him adjudicate it. You then also have an open copy, which is the one you keep in your desk drawer. And that allows you to go about your normal business. So, you know, you know, where can I plow? Where can I build my house? You know, where can I dig ditches? Where can I do all this stuff? And you've got an open copy that you can refer to. And you and your neighbor can go back and forth because he's got an open copy of his deed. And they should agree. So if, a working copy, if you will. This is the only place that I know that a deed shows up in Scripture like this. As I say, there is a deed for the cave of Machpelah where uh, Abraham purchases the land to bury Sarah, but it doesn't go into the detail about an open copy and a closed copy and seals and all that kind of stuff. So, what I'm 
saying to you here in Revelation chapter 5 is that the scroll that has the seven seals on it is the record copy. Okay? So the record copy that's kept at the county seat, in this case, heaven, is up there and it's sealed. And so the question then becomes, who is the kinsman, the one who is authorized to redeem the property described in the deed, and so is worthy, that, worthy as in authorized, to open it? Okay? Because not just anybody, I, would, you know, I don't know anything about Hebrew land law, I've never done it, but I'm assuming that not just anybody can waltz into the courthouse and say, you know, pop that thing open, I want to I see it. I would imagine it has to be some, you know, a party that's involved. What I'm saying is it's sealed. Yeah. All of them are redeemed. Where? I understand that in, in our way of doing things. I don't know what it was in Israel's way of doing things. Let me give you another example. In the New Testament, the uh, rascally steward who uh, gets found out by his master, and the master says, give an account of your stewardship because you can no longer be steward. And he goes quickly to the people who are least, you know, sharecropping the uh, farmland. And he says, all right, here, what's your bill? And he says, 100 measures of, of, of wheat. Quickly, right now, write down 50. Remember that story in the New Testament? Yeah, the unjust steward. Anyway, the, the, the point is, that one I do know how it was done. And what happens is you've got a steward that's managing a, an estate. And he deals with the tenant farmers. And so as they, you know, he, he arranges the lease. And, you know, if you're growing wheat, whatever you make on the plot of the estate that I give you, you get, but you owe rent of X percent or X number of bushels or, or whatever. And so he's the guy that manages that. And what he does is he goes to his tenants and he says, basically mark down your bill and he marks the bill down and in that process he gains favor with the tenant farmers okay and the way that worked that system worked is the bill the contract if you will the lease you know so you've got we got a you know thousand acre estate I'm going to lease 100 acres to grow wheat. You're going to lease 100 acres to grow apples. You're going to, you know, that kind of thing. So these subleases or these leases are written in the handwriting of the tenant farmer. And they are kept by the steward. So the two of them sit down at a table and the tenant farmer writes out his bill and he signs it, rolls it up, gives it to the steward. The steward then takes it back to the office and puts it in a safe. And that way, if the bill is changed and it's somebody else's handwriting, the, the tenant farmer will say, wait a minute, I didn't make that change. Okay? And, and since the copy is with the steward, the tenant can't make us change. So the only way that bill can be changed is if the two of them sit down together, as is, as is the case in that parable, and the tenant writes the change and the steward then takes the bill. So all I'm saying is it isn't clear to me, I understand what you said about uh, public deeds being recorded here. I don't know that that's the case 
in Israel land law. I just don't know. And given that the seals are being broken, it sort of indicates to me that it's not something that is done except in the presence of all concerned and in the case of a substantive dispute. But again, I'm not an expert at that. We tend to think of a sealed deed as, as you know, the, the notary public crimps his seal on the piece of paper. In this case, what it was, it was rolled up and, and was sealed, so it can't be unrolled without breaking the seal. Again, a different kind of a seal, if you will. What this scroll is, is the record copy of the deed to the earth. And in order to be able to open the seals, the one who is to open them has to be human, because who was, give, who was given title of the earth? Adam was. Adam was. So in order to open the seal, if you will, you first off, you've got to be human, which explains why Messiah had to come and be born of a woman, because that makes him eligible then to open the seals. And the second thing, apparently, and again, it doesn't say here in Scripture, so I'm surmising, is that he's also got to be, quote, worthy, which is without sin. Okay? That's surmise on my part. Okay? But, it, but it doesn't, notice John's up there, and you've got other people up there, it looks like, and none of them is worthy to open the deed. So I'm inferring from that that Messiah's sinless condition also has to do with him being an acceptable one to open the deed. So he's got to be human, and I'm surmising he's also got to be sinless. But the second part of that's genealogy, and you don't have to buy it if you don't like it. Yeah. Yeah. That very good comment. I agree with that. Let me get it on. Let me get it on tape. That's a good comment. One assumes that in order to open, if my surmise is correct, that in order to open a sealed deed in this case, you need to have a magistrate. You know, somebody there official. You need to have the parties to the dispute, and you should have witnesses. Because remember, the deed was, in Jeremiah's case, is executed with a whole bunch of witnesses, and a bunch of people sign it and all that kind of stuff before they seal it up. You, in fact, have that condition here in heaven. You've got the magistrate, which is God. Okay? You've got the parties, which is Yeshua and anybody else that's there. And then you've also got the witnesses. Who are the witnesses? 24 elders. And I'm suggesting that may be analogous to being in the city gate. Remember, the elders in a city sat at the gate. That's where business like this was routinely transacted. So having 24 elders in the gate, quote unquote, again makes sense by analogy. So, I'm at uh, verse 6 in Revelation 5. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. Okay, so seven horns means what? Power. Horns are power. So seven horns is complete power. We went through the seven spirits of God last time when we first ran into it back in Revelation 4. I'm not going to go through that again. Um, so you have then a lamb there that has complete power and the, the full spirit of God within him. Verse 7. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saint. 
remember that the 24 elders have, up until this point, been falling down at the feet of God, right? Remember every time you got the, the seraphim orbiting around, and every time the seraphim say, holy, 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 the 24 elders fall to the ground and so forth, well, now they've shifted focus, okay? They're, they're now falling down in, around the Lamb. I mean, the Lamb is still in the middle there, but the, the shift in focus is he is now being worshipped. And they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Okay, now those of you who are King James only, or came from King James only, or heard this taught King James only, should recognize that what I just read is not the way King Jimmy renders it. The way King Jimmy remembers it is, you ransomed us. And therein lies a major doctrinal dispute within Christianity. And it's one of the places that King James only goes to, to argue that King James is the only authorized tradition. Because It's, it's actually not in King James, it's in the underlying Greek from the Texas Receptus. It's that the, the Alexandrian text, which my translation comes from, has it they, you ransom people or you ransom them, and King James Texas Receptus has you ransomed us. I don't know that it makes any difference. Uh, one of the things that I find with the King James only crowd, they t- they tend to hang a lot of things on the differences between King Jimmy and some of the other texts. And they'll say, you just can't be saved unless you're reading it this way from the King James text because only the Texas Receptus is authorized and so forth. I don't buy that. My perspective is you start with the Torah, and by the time you get to this point in the book, if you're not straight, the difference between us and them isn't going to make any difference to you. But one of the things that they hang on this difference is the doctrine of the rapture. I, I am not a rapture guy. Spent a long time thinking about it and studying it. The the Sunday church in the United States is sort of awash with rapture, and it, it's sort of assumed that everybody thinks that way, and in fact, not everybody does. Uh, certainly, I don't. If you were in a good evangelical church or whatever, they would all be saying that studying chapter 4 on is academic only because it doesn't apply to you. And, and I've heard that taught many, many times. Don't agree with it, but I've heard it taught. And, and I understand the arguments, and they're good arguments, and the people that hold them are sincere. I just don't have to agree with them. And, you know, and, and as, as Chuck Missler says, Chuck Missler believes in the rapture, and his comment for, with, for people like me is, it's okay, we'll explain it to you on the way up. Okay? And as long as the argument is on that level, there's nothing wrong with it. But you'll get people that'll get entrenched and, and break fellowship and all that kind of nonsense over it. And, and it's, not, it's not worth that. The, the dispute isn't worth that level of passion. Quickly, the reason I don't buy it is because all of the passages that they point to that they say indicate a rapture look to me like what I would call hints. My perspective is you've got these little hints that people use to justify the rapture and you've got a whole big honking book of the Torah that tells you something else. 
So you've got the book of Exodus where God is taking his people out of a world while he rains down judgment on the top of it. And he doesn't, he doesn't rapture them out of there. They're right there in Egypt while all this stuff is going down. And they stand up and walk out. So God is perfectly capable of caring for his own while he deals with the ones he wants to deal with. And he doesn't have to slicky them off to heaven or anything like that. Well, he doesn't. He didn't do it during the Exodus. And again, I, I find the Exodus pattern far more persuasive than I find the rapture pattern. If you like the rapture pattern, God bless you. Uh, but when we go into the wilderness, just come on over and I'll explain it to you. Okay? <laughs> Worthy are you to take a stroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. The thing that makes him worthy is because he was slain and was and conquered. Verse 11. Then I looked, and I heard this around the throne and living creatures, and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Now, a myriad of a myriad is a hundred million. Okay? Myriad is, is 10,000. So 10,000 ten thousands is a hundred million. Okay? A thousand thousands is a million. In other words, you've got 10 to the 8th and 10 to the 6th is what it amounts to. So what I take this to be is lots and lots and lots. I, I don't take this to be an enumeration. Um, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Okay, that's a menorah. If you look at it in pairs, power and wealth, and then the next one in, wisdom and might, honor and glory, blessing. Just like everything else in Scripture that deals with the menorah, it is nested parentheses, if you will. The farthest thing, one's out, which is power and wealth are worldly things. That's what men strive for, if you will. Then the next one in is, is wisdom and, and might. You're starting to get more cerebral, more spiritual, if you will. Then honor and glory, and then finally blessing. And one of the things I will gently suggest to you is what you are seeing there is a definition of blessing. In other words, blessing is the center candle in the menorah, and everything radiates out from that. And what I will gently suggest, that one who is blessed receives honor and glory, certainly not on the same scale that he, the lamb does, you, don't get me wrong, you know, I'm not, not suggesting an equivalence here, I'm simply suggesting a similarity in, in kind, not in degree. And then wisdom and might, those are blessings, and then finally uh, power and wealth. So if you look at those as a menorah, what I'm gently suggesting is that you are looking at a definition of what a blessing is. Components of a blessing. And when you are blessed, you wind up with all of those things in varying degrees. And, and one of the things that people, especially in, in the church, kind of get messed up with is they tend to equate blessings with stuff. In other words, when I'm blessed, I got lots of stuff. 
And what I'm suggesting to you, yeah, you may get stuff as part of a blessing, but it's really a much more comprehensive concept. 13. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Okay. So we've got the, the, by the way, in verse 13, every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. So what are we talking about there? All of creation. What does Paul say? Remember? All of creation groans because it was put into futility. Right? So, as Paul says, all creation is groaning. Here it's saying all creation is giving honor to God at this point, or to the Lamb, as he gets ready to open the seals. Okay, now, let's talk about what happens next before we go through what happens next. We've got three sets of seven coming up. You've got seven seals, you've got seven trumpets, and you've got seven bowls of wrath. Interspersed, typically between the sixth and the seventh of each set, there is a vignette that happens. Okay, so the structure is six, vignette, seventh, generally speaking. Okay, now it is my perspective that these three sets of seven are sequential and they are meant to be taken literally. Okay, in other words, there's nothing allegorical, there's nothing mystical here. I am of the opinion that the book of Revelation is intended to be clear, understood, and you are to be able to take action based on it when things start to unfold. So it is not my opinion that this is something mystical and esoteric and allegorical and all that kind of stuff. I, I just don't believe that. I think it's sequential, meant to be understood, and when things start going down, you're supposed to recognize what's going on, and you're supposed to be able to take action. Okay, that that's a perspective from which I am teaching this, and, that, and I and I believe that. And one of the places that I go for that, let's go back to Matthew 24. What Yeshua does in this in this passage is basically he tells them what's coming, and he tells them how to recognize what's coming, and he tells them what to do in response to what's coming. And Yeshua says in several places that if you're not watching and you're not waiting, when he comes back it will be like a thief in the night. You know, he'll come and sneak in on you. But he also says if you are watching and you are waiting, you will recognize when this stuff is happening. Okay? So the idea here is those that are not paying attention do not love God, or, or maybe they love God, but they're being lax and not doing what God would have them do. They're going to be surprised. The world is going to be surprised. But his people who are doing what he's telling them to do and are paying attention to what's going on will recognize the seasons and will recognize the times and will recognize what's happening, and these things will not take them as a thief in the night. Matthew 24, 32. From the fig tree, learn this lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. 
so also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning the, that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man, and so forth. I don't, I'm not going to go off to the rest of that. He says two things, which may appear to be contradictory. First off, he says, you're going to be able to see, just as you can tell when a fig tree is about to give its fruit, you're going to be able to tell when this stuff is ready to go. Then he says, no man knows the day or the hour. Right? And those are perfectly reconcilable. Right? Sure. What's, what's no one knows the day or the hour? Rosh Hashanah. Yeah. That's the, only, the Feast of Trumpets is the only one where no one knows the day or the hour. Because the Feast of the feast of Trumpets doesn't happen until you sight the new moon. And you don't know when you're going to sight the new moon. I mean, you know within a couple of days when it's going to be. But nobody knows the exact day or the hour when the new moon is going to be sighted. And then once that new moon is sighted, then all of the rest of the fall feast march on from that day. But until that is sighted, no one knows the day or the hour. You know, we publish calendars and we look out ahead and all that kind of stuff. And Brian does his astronomical observations and makes his calculations. And sometimes he's even right. Okay. Well, he is. And, it, yeah, and he takes it very seriously. And, and, and it's important. But he is under no illusions that his predictions have anything to do with when God decides to show the new moon. So the idea of knowing the seasons, being able to see what's coming down, recognizing when things are about to happen, and no one knows the day or the hour are, are perfectly reconcilable with that understanding. So anyway, my perspective is in Revelation that things are going to happen sequentially. They are meant to be taken exactly literally, and we are intended to understand and we are intended to be able to look at it and say, oh, okay, there's that, here we go. And this is what's going to happen next. Okay? Now, the three sets of three, seven seals, that is where the Lamb, who is the rightful owner of the planet, is standing up in the county courthouse, which is heaven, and is opening up the record copy of the deed and saying, see, here, that's me. See, me. That's me. That's me. That's me. I'm the one. And at the end of those seven seals, he will have established that he owns the place. Okay? Then we have seven trumpets. The seven trumpets announce the coming of the king. In other words, once he has established that he is the owner, and he is the king of kings, and it's laid out and established legally in heaven in front of witnesses, then he sends forth his heralds and we start getting trumpets announcing the coming of the king. And on the seventh trumpet is when he's going to touch down on the Mount of Olives. Then we have seven bowls of wrath, and that is the king taking vengeance on his enemies. We see that over and over in Scripture. If you read the Gospels, you know, Yeshua talks in parables about it and everything else, that 
when he comes back, he's going to take advantage or he's going to take vengeance on those wicked stewards who have been oppressing their brothers, who have been despoiling the vineyard, who have been not giving him his share of the juice. I mean, over and over and over again in the parables, it says, when I come back, there's going to be wailing and gnashing of teeth because I'm going to take vengeance on my enemies. That's the seven bowls of wrath. Okay? So what you have here in Revelation then is boom, 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 21 times and a sequence of events that is intended to roll out just the way it's written down because it follows everything else in Scripture. And as I say, in between, the, typically between the sixth and the seventh of each of these seven, then you have an interlude. And those interludes are not sequential. And the way somebody described it last time we were going through it is, as you're reading along in a book or watching a movie, you have this thing, meanwhile, over here, and you have something that's taken out of the flow of the story and is there to give you some kind of background. So as we're going through open seal, 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 seal. Meanwhile, over here, we're going to do this. Now we're back to the seals and we're going to move on. Okay. And the meanwhile part of it is not necessarily sequential. In other words, it doesn't necessarily fall there. It's simply a literary device because some of the things will go clear back to creation. So again, don't get confused. Just understand what's going on. It's a literary device where he's going to say, oh, by the way, meanwhile, and give you some background before he goes on to the next event in the sequence. Okay? Have I said all that so it makes sense? You don't have to agree with me, but does, did, did you understand what I said? Yeah. Agree with me or not, I don't care. But just so long as I explained it so you understood it. Please consider becoming a sponsor. Please visit crimsonthread.com purpose for an explanation of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor. Thank you.